Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, hey. and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show. It is episode number 95. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Thrillers. Mystery. And suspense. And you're a bit croaky this week. I am. I sound very Halloween-y, very evil and ghostly. Well, yeah, that's, for, that's a given. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've, I've had a bit of a cold. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it's not weathering well, is it? I mean, in terms of, you, know, you just you feel grotty. Yes, fairly grotty. A bit foggy in the brain department. So I apologise if I'm not as intelligent as normal this morning. Indeed. Uh, well, I'm sure you are, but... I'm I'm a little under the weather in the sense that I haven't slept very well for the last 48 hours. And I'll explain what I was up to after we've had our, our interview this week. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling quite sort of just that. Do you know when you get that when you're tired and it just hurts you behind the eyeballs? Tingly eyes, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling at the minute. Anyway. Yes. Look, he was Zebedee let, last night. Yeah, I was. I was up and down all night. Uh, let's not dwell on that at this point. Let's just tell you who's coming up in the programme. It is the amazing Kate Moss. Kate Moss with an E. Kate Moss with an E. We had Greg Moss. Also with an E. Last week. And Kate is joining us this week. So we get the other half of the partnership. And Kate's, you know, breakthrough mega hit. Yes. Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Which I read many years ago on a train. 2005 that came out, which was uh, the Longer Dock trilogy, the start of the Longer Dock trilogy, which is historical fiction. And there's, you know, huge, huge fans, numbers of fans across the world. Translated into 37 different languages. And he's counted them. Uh, well, yeah, I couldn't name them all, <laughs> but I've counted them. So uh, Kate Moss is joining us, and uh, she has a new non-fiction book, which focuses on amazing forgotten women from history. And I've decided it's going to be my Christmas reading, because every Christmas I like to read something, um, usually non-fiction, but something that gets me thinking. If I'm not thinking in my day-to-day life over Christmas, because I'm not working so hard, I need a thinky book. So I'm going to... Absolutely. We'll be talking to Kate about that and also her pivotal role in the creation of the Women's uh, Prize for Fiction, which is one of the biggest literary awards now in the world. And it's been going for, what, 28 years, I believe. So terrific uh, opportunity to, to hear from Kate a little later in the programme. Let's talk to, uh, some news. And it's, it's kind of a, a wider thing than, you know, specifically publishing. But it, you know, it caught my eye and I think the, the, the eye of the markets um, that there were two or three sort of big shocks in the terms of the the share price of some of the biggest companies in the world, and to which I'm referring to uh, Amazon mm. and indeed the parent company of Facebook, Meta, both had colossal write downs in their uh, in their share price this week. In fact, the Amazon one was one of the biggest falls in corporate history in one day. That's two hundred is... billion dollars in value. Uh, that's, that's, you just can't imagine that, can you? Sat here on the sofa trying to imagine. Losing two, uh, the, the value of $200 billion 
in a day. Yeah, it, well, obviously, you know, it personally impacts the fortune of Jeff Bezos, who's sort of taking a backseat role nowadays. But the fact is that uh, Amazon simply said, look, trading conditions for us in terms of turnover and the amount of products that we're actually selling through our website is very much under pressure and dropping. And that was the reaction of the marketplace. And you can see why. I mean, the economic head, you know, the headwinds, which are affecting the global economy, are enormous. And the disposable income of people across the world has dropped dramatically in the space of two or three months and is only going to get worse for a bit. Certainly that's what the prediction is. And so they um, sent out a warning that uh, their, their results would not be as strong and that they weren't expecting a particularly good Christmas. And that's the impact. Yeah, it's, it's a bad, it's a hard time of year, isn't it? Because you need more money at this time of year. Yeah, you do, you do. The other thing with, with Facebook is that um, they have lost a lot of value. I mean, they had issued a warning to say that their advertising revenue has has dipped dramatically, which is true for a lot of, of digital advertisers. Uh, there just isn't the money out there in the in the economy for people to spend on that. So it might have a, a positive impact in the sense that it might make the adverts cheaper. Interesting, yeah, could do. In, in, in terms of the auctions that you have to go through for Amazon and, and Facebook. But at the same time, it, you know, it, it does tell you that things are going to be very tough. Now, those are our advertising markets. That's We are a digital. Uh, most of our products are digital in the form of e-books. Yeah. It's a, it's a really difficult environment. But I, I, I thought that was very striking that, that the, the, the news around Facebook is that many analysts are saying that Mark Zuckerberg and his metaverse dreams are just fanciful and no one, you know, he, he might have been a visionary uh, in one regard sort of 10 years ago in terms of creating this behemoth of social media and all the things that have come with it. But at the moment, the company is floundering in terms of finding a way forward. The, the contrast is Apple's results were brilliant. Um, they've been shifting a lot of iPhone 14s and, 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 and uh, their value went up. But everyone else in the tech sector is under pressure. Well, we all need phones. We do, and we rely on them, and I read on mine, so, uh, as indeed many people do. So that's um, the, sort of, uh, the, the sort of macro news, which uh, is, you know, of concern, I think. Yes. But, I mean, it might offer opportunities, we just don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's concerning, but you just have to be creative. You just have to sort of think your way around problems like this, I think. We do, indeed. From our perspective. We do. And a second story that we tweeted this week from our Hobeck Twitter account. Actually, that was the other story that I wanted to talk about, which reminds me now. Go on, then. But um, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But you, you pointed out, and it was actually Alison Morgan, uh, one of our authors who... Uh, raised this and uh, spotted this article in The Guardian here in the UK, which talks about the proposed cuts to BBC Local Radio. Now, when I joined BBC Local Radio in 1995, uh, I worked for BBC Southern Counties Radio, and that had been reorganised in a way of sort of cutting money because it used to be BBC Surrey and separately BBC Sussex. And they abandoned almost all of their fabulous building in Brighton, opposite the Brighton Dome and the Pavilion. Yeah. And moved everybody to Guildford. And, uh, oh, what a swap. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, when, so it was, a, it was a more modern station. And actually, yes, Radio Sussex needed 
revamping and it was it was a sort of uh, a mansion building you know higgledy piggledy and, and it, it didn't make a lot of logical sense for a modern newsroom yeah but i would have loved to work oh like yeah that. yeah you would have done <laughs> and as it was uh one of the biggest producers of uh radio 4 plays and documentaries uh peer productions rubbed their hands together and took over the basement studios and uh, <laughs> built their business around that but i had a little bit of an office uh, a couple of little micro studios uh, remaining when I became Brighton reporter, but you know you did feel that sort of echoes of of, of greatness. They've moved up to to posher studios near the station now, but the problem is that BBC Local Radio has been hammered every time the, the government, and it has to be made clear, this is a reaction to what the government have done to the to the to the BBC's funding over the last few years. Um, BBC Local Radio has always had a disproportionate amount of the cuts. Yes. And a fresh round of cuts uh, were due to be uh, announced uh, today, in fact. With sources telling The Guardian it would herald the end of most local radio stations as truly distinctive standalone outlets. Now, I do remember when I first worked there as a newsreader, I'd work the evening shift, and we had our own programmes for our area up till 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So we were on air from 5am through to 1am. So 20 hours of local generated speech content none of it was chained across different you know clusters of stations which it later became Mm. um which was a a great sadness and now they're talking about stripping out almost all local content so what is the point of bbc local radio now the impact for our uh our business is that a lot of our authors rely on cosy afternoon interviews on your BBC local radio station yeah, get, quite, the, get the word out about your book quite a few have done this so Lynn Laverse has done it Brian Price Alison Rachel Morgan Sargent. Rachel Sargent they've all Rob Gittins as well you know it is a great outlet for them to talk to their local communities especially if their book has a local setting yeah so yeah I mean will that will they still be able to do that probably not by the sounds of it no, they won't because they won't have the program. They won't have the airtime. Yeah. And it won't be relevant. If you're going to close individual stations, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but if you're really only going to run a breakfast show from your local area, which is what's happened in independent radio, because essentially some of, you know, most most areas simply get their heart breakfast show from London mm. now as their breakfast show, even though when those stations were set up, they were independent local radio stations. They've been bought up, chained together. Occasionally, the big metro markets uh, in Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, that sort of thing, will have their own breakfast show because that's where the money is. But they need something local, people sounding local. But most of the time, it's all chained together. And it's a really great sound. So how do people like me, when I started off, I started off in tiny little stations. Uh, well, not tiny, actually. They were quite big news in their area. But nonetheless, they were totally independent of any other big big companies. Yeah, so they could give opportunities to absolutely. up and coming. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with the BBC. You know, that's that's how I got in. You know, um, they needed, a, you know, being in an all speech radio station, which was an experiment, meant that they needed a lot of people doing some talking. Oh, so they looked to you. And they looked Someone to me. who likes talking. Well, yeah, as it as it turns out. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll look out for those actual changes, but I, I I can't imagine it's going to be good. I mean, only two weeks ago, uh, I heard that a program that I had worked very closely with and managed, World Football, was going to shut down in six months, and um, it's a great sadness because World Football has a, had a following for twenty five years, something like that, 
In fact, I applied to become its first producer. I didn't get it, but, um, you know, I feel very strongly about it. And uh, good friends work on it. So that's shutting because there isn't the money. And this is across the whole of the BBC. And I think what people have always warned from uh, the industry itself is saying, you take away, if you start knocking bits off the BBC, then the wider cultural impact is something you can't measure initially, but it will be huge. Uh, in terms of the opportunities for people to develop and come out and, you know, of course work in the commercial sector perhaps, but, you know, you still need somewhere that generates that talent and has the time to bring in new people. Okay, this may be a bit of a dim question for someone who's got half a degree in economics, but you said there isn't the money. Where's the money gone? Well, because the, there's several factors here. First, of the, the biggest of all was the decision by the Conservative government to take away the free license fees for the over 75s which was being paid for from the government and then they told the bbc you have to absorb the cost and make a decision so the government kept the money no they just stopped paying it that's uh, what i mean so they kept it, the it money. was it was a social good that gordon brown gave the over 75s free license fees and then they told the bbc you're responsible for collecting them oh i see so the people kept the money over 75 people they they kept their money. They they had sorry. They no. they had to pay the license fee to the BBC Direct. Yes. Uh, okay. Right, and so the BBC had a had, were in a deliberately difficult position. This was George Osborne who imposed this, and um, basically they had a you know do we pass it on to our uh, over seventy fives, or do we find a hybrid solution? You know means test it. That's full of fraught with problems basically the cost of the evidence was borne by the other license fee payers and effectively yeah. it led to a 750 million pound cut in a um an annual uh, budget of five billion now some of that five billion is made commercially the actual license fee income is about 3.7 billion now they've been told that you know it's frozen so inflation's rate running away at 10 percent um so they can't they were due to get inflationary increases for a few years to but then um, Nadine Doris and the uh, and the Boris Johnson government stopped that and so they're taking real terms cuts on top of that impact of the pensioners and various other things have happened too uh, they've had to absorb the cost of the world service which used to be paid for by the foreign office uh, which is 250 million and now they're making cuts to that in fact, huge cuts, so that most of the, I mean, a lot of the programmes say to Africa, which was a mega audience for the BBC, uh, are being shut down, uh, quite simply. They're just not happening. And, you know, these are marquee names. Focus on Africa is a huge show, which tens of millions of people across Africa used to tune into, and that is being moved to Nairobi and only being run once a day or something like that. So there's huge, 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 huge cuts. And, uh, you know, I have some sympathy for the management of the BBC, but there are all sorts of things that I suppose you could argue, and this is the flip side. A lot of people say, you know, I'm not going to pay my licence fee anymore. You don't produce anything that we want. They did make some strategic errors. And one of the biggest of all was trying to chase a youth audience that was never going to come. And they've just alienated people who are natural fans of the BBC in the older generation by just talking down to us the whole time. And I count myself in that older generation now. But I'm the sort of person they don't want. They want a younger audience. And I just won't put up with the rubbish. Dad dancing. Exactly. 
anyway, look, we've we've gone down a rabbit hole there, but but anyway, that's uh, one thing. So there will be fewer outlets for our authors to talk about their books, which again is a, is a huge blow because it does it makes such a difference. And I really feel sorry for the communities who aren't going to get local content. Um, you know, it is traditionally an old older audience, of course, who want to. And when you when you take these things away, you know, I remember doing what we used to call snow patrol. Um, whenever it snowed in the southern counties, out we'd go as reporters, as many of us as they could lay our hands on and tell people how bad things were out on the road. I mean, I remember in 95 that winter and the 96 subsequently, terrible winters. And um, we had periods of, sort of two or three weeks of heavy snow. And we'd be out there every day trying to describe just how difficult it was to get about. I was skiing in Japan. Lucky you. I was almost skiing in the uh, Hogsback near Guildford. But the fact is that people turn to us in droves to find out this information as much as anything to tell people whether their school, school was shut. I know. Because this was before you the internet. You always used to listen generally... to the local radio, didn't you, to find well, out? Well, they still do. And, you know, it's often the quickest way to get that message out there. I mean, you know, you can have your school Twitter account and all that sort of thing, but still it's very important service. So that's going to go. Uh, so the third thing we wanted to talk about was Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Oh, that. How could we forget that? Yes. Yeah. So that's a big news. <laughs> it is big news. He's paid £44 billion for it, a dollars rather, I should say. And he's kicked out all the chief. It's almost the same All thing. the sort of executives at Twitter have been uh, given their marching orders and he's bringing in his own coders to change the thing. But, I mean, it does set this, you know, whole set of questions in my mind. Do I personally and do we as a business want to be on a, on a platform owned by him? Well, yes. I mean, for, as far as I'm concerned, we use Twitter a lot. I cannot imagine. I'd... Yeah, I know. this is the thing. This is the quandary, isn't it? Well, no, it's not a quandary because we need it. We use it. It's a valuable part what, of our communication strategy. Yes, it is. It is a valuable part. But what if his influence, his changes, the stance he takes on people who have been uh, who are likely to come back to Twitter, like Donald Trump, as a result of him sort of freeing everybody to come back in with their views that I find abhorrent. But you don't follow them then? No, that's that. But you know, do you want to be in that in that bubble again? Now, as he, 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 Elon Musk, this is, hasn't really specified what he's going to do with the platform yet, but he's done some really strange things geopolitically recently uh, pertaining to uh, Putin and Ukraine, which I find very disturbing. And I'm personally questioning whether I should just come off Twitter because I think a lot of people are, have, you know, feel that he's overpaid for it. He's borrowed a lot of money to, to even though he's the world's richest man at the moment. He has borrowed a lot of money to buy Twitter. He's kicked out everybody who was moderating and running it before, bringing his own people. Do you really want to live on, you know, in that environment? And so I think that is a big question. I think a lot of people will leave Twitter. I don't think it will be as effective in well, the future. Well, if that happens, if all the people we communicate with on Twitter left Twitter, then there's no point in us being on Twitter. So we would leave at that point, yes. Okay, right. Well, I mean, you know, this is the balance, isn't it? making a political decision against the financial one. That's that's what we're talking about here. And the morality of Twitter. Yes. Well, I mean, yes, it's a big decision. <laughs> okay, uh, let's get into our interview with Kate Moss. As we mentioned, Kate wrote the Longer Doc trilogy and uh, historical fiction, which sold millions of copies worldwide. And uh, she now has a new book which um, we're very excited about which is a non-fiction book she's been touring the country 
releasing this um, this new book. Yeah, we were quite lucky to um, have a chance to interview her because she's very busy at the moment. She really is. This new book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Kate is also uh, the, uh, the deputy chair of the National Theatre in the UK, which is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the most connected people you could ever meet in, in publishing, really. Yes. I mean, she is definitely someone to admire because she's got her foot in so many different places, just like her husband Greg does as well. They must be, and they must be so busy, but they're also taking the time to talk to us, both of them. You know, we, we really appreciate that, that we're just a little podcast, really. <laughs> we're a massive podcast, just, just a po- massive podcast in waiting. So, uh, Kate Moss, uh, new book is Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, How Women Also Built the World. And uh, as she explains to us, this was uh, something of a lockdown project, reaching out to her many, many uh, sort of fans across the world for their advice and um, their recommendations for people that she should research and including the book. And uh, that's how this all came together. So let's speak to Kate Moss. Huge honour for us on the Hopcast Book Show to be joined by Kate Moss a week after we spoke to Greg Moss. So uh, we expect uh, we'll, we'll be dropping in a few secrets that he revealed last week. But <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us. It's a, a, in a real pleasure for us. It's a pleasure. And I know Greg had a lovely time talking to you. So happy to well, be here. Well, <laughs> thank you. And, and we appreciate it because you're extremely busy at the moment. You've been touring with your latest nonfiction book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. Um, and it came out, well, a couple of weeks ago or so. Uh, it's, it must be, is this part of the job that you love doing the touring or is it uh, it one of those things that actors say, oh, I'll have to do it, but (laughs) (laughs) no, no, I really like it. Um, I, I really feel that books start to come to life once they're in readers' hands. Um, and so being out and about and meeting readers was something I really missed during lockdown. Um, And one of the reasons this book came about was actually that, that I was publishing a novel into lockdown, uh, a novel called The City of Tears, which is the second in my Joubert family chronicles. And um, and I thought, oh, no, there's not going to be any moment. I'm not going to be out meeting readers. So I launched a social media campaign just saying name one woman in history you think should be better known or who you'd like to celebrate. And um, I had thousands of responses. And this book really came out of that, you know, the question of what is history and uh, who makes it, who gets to decide. Um, But being back on the road with this book in particular has been wonderful because we're getting a lot of parents coming with their teenage girls and boys, as well as older women and men, more of my age, who still want to have these conversations about women's place in history. So it's been a joyous, joyous tour. And and, and how difficult was it to... to to write this book in terms of the research? I mean, you had these names coming forward, then you've got to think, right, what, who am I going to focus on and how am I going to structure this, this book? How difficult was that research? Well, that's right. I mean, I used the nominations that came from people as the basis of it. I mean, this book is a love letter to history mm. and it's a celebration of nearly a thousand women. And it's also a story about my own detective, uh, detective work, I suppose, into a lost woman in my own history in my own family history, asking how somebody who was as well known in her day as my great grandmother, who was a very well-known novelist, could have just completely vanished, which she has from the record. So there are all these different impulses in the book. But um, once I used the basis of people's nominations and my own interest, I then thought, okay, I can see that there's 
a chapter on writers, there's a chapter on explorers and adventurers, there's a chapter on warrior queens and pirate commanders, uh, there's a chapter on the law, uh, which obviously I couldn't resist calling a woman's places at the bar, um, obviously, <laughs> uh, you know, um, absolutely. It kind of, it kind of um, set itself into particular areas. But then I did have to think, okay, I've got no women from this culture or no women from this part of the world or no women from that bit of history. And then I actively went in search of people. Uh, you know, in the old fashioned way, joyously, it's much easier to research now because of the internet and all of these things. So you can kind of type in, tell me famous women from uh, North African culture in the 14th century, you know, you can do that. Um, but then, of course, you're going to have to do the proper research. You can't rely, you know, it's a great search engine, but you can't rely on the quality of the information. So um, so I did want it to be global uh, because we all made the world. You know, we've always all been in this world together. And I feel very strongly about that. Men and women, people of all different races, ethnicities, ages, periods of history. Um, we know that everybody built the world. So let's just put some of those names back. Absolutely. Now, in terms of your family connection, we're talking about Lily here. Um, give us a bit more behind, you know, who she was and how she weaves her way through this book. Well, I needed something um, as as the glue, if you will, uh, because there are plenty of books putting women back into history. And, and mine is just one of those. And it's really important because repetition matters. Uh, so the more books there are, the more these names will become household names. But I knew I needed it there to be something slightly more that would make it my book. And mm. um, it was I always knew in my that there was somebody who wrote. It was always put like that um, in my history. Um, <laughs> like a hobby. <laughs> exactly right. It was well, exactly actually almost like, like a, oh, they wrote, you know, that yeah, kind yeah. of yeah, it was yeah, a bit know, shabby so like, in those days. Exactly. <laughs> you know, not something to be talked about and certainly not a profession or a career. Um, and so I did know that. But when I started to look into uh, Lily, who was born in 1849 and died in 1932 and was my my beloved father's granny and he mm. loved her um, and I loved my own granny and they were very close that bit of the family. My granny was the youngest of six children and she was 20 years younger than her eldest sibling and was clearly very much the, the beloved late child in that family. <laughs> Um, so I was, you know, I was interested in finding out more about her. But then I discovered, you know, she'd written uh, 14 novels, her most famous of which, The Vicar of Langthwaite, when it came out, there was a letter to the Times by the Prime Minister of the day, Gladstone, saying oh. it's to be hugely um, celebrated that there is a new novel from Lily Watson. Uh, she wrote nearly um, 100 articles and reviews for Girls' Own Paper. She wrote poetry. She wrote devotional tracts. She was really well known. Mm. You can't find a mention of her. None yeah. of her works are in print. Uh, she doesn't come up in any books of Victorian literature or Victorian writers or Victorian women. And I just thought, well, if a woman like that, who left a very big footprint, can vanish, what about everybody else? And so that formed the spine of the book. Mm. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's some fantastic inspiration behind this this yeah. work. Yeah, and, you know, what was also really inspiring was that... Um, in a way, I would say one of the most distinctive things about my fiction is landscape. Mm. Uh, you know, all of my historical fiction are really love letters to Carcassonne and the southwest of France. Yeah. But putting landscape on the page and the idea of the whispering in the landscape, which is how history is animated and comes to life, is very much part of how I write. So when I 
started with the help of my brilliant husband, Greg, um, to track down the books. And when I say the help of, what I mean is Greg tracked down the books. Um, like all good feminists, I said, help me. Um, <laughs> I was completely stumped about how to do this. And I read all of her fiction that we could get our hands on. The one thing that is distinctive is landscape. And that was just an amazing and wonderful thing to think, oh, there, this novel starts with the heroine looking out over the extraordinary mountains hidden in mist. I could have started almost any one of my novels like that. Um, so that was just this sense of fellow feeling. Not only was she a novelist and a historical novelist at that, but actually the thing that's most important to me was very fundamental to her too. Mm, so there's that, that sort of yeah. genetically yeah. maybe. Which was lovely. I mean, it's just lovely to see. But one thing we talk about quite often with our authors, isn't it, that the the, the place, the landscape is as a character, just as important as the people in the book. So do you feel, is that, you know, something you feel quite strongly about? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I'm asked to name my, you know, the one novel that's had the biggest effect on me, I, I always name Wuthering Heights because I think that is the 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 absolute example of that, that the moors there are fundamentally the lead character of the book more than the people. And I feel that in landscape, you know, all of my books have landscape very um, integral to them, but it's the idea that it's the place that holds the history, not mm. the books, not even the people. And that we as people will walk through these landscapes and there will be many people, many people who've gone before us and many people who will go after us. And I find a piece in that, the idea that we are very small within the landscape, that the land goes on. Um, and so that is fundamental to me. And I, I wouldn't say it was as fundamental to Lily. I would say that the bedrock of Lily's uh, fiction is faith. Mm. But of course, I write about faith and the consequences of faith. Um, that's very much part of the stories that I tell of Southwest France and the animation of Europe, which is very much defined by a Christian faith in particular. Uh, for Lily, her Baptist faith and later her Church of England faith uh, was, was the bedrock to her life. So I would say that that is also fundamental to her fiction in a way that um, it's fundamental to my fiction is history rather than faith in that sense. Um, but, you know, there's a great deal of overlap and that, that was just extraordinary to find out. Yeah. I, I, one question that's popping into my head as we talk about landscape is the, there's a modern, it, it, I, I may be wrong in this, but this is my, my interpretation of, of modern taste is to actually, you know, from, from an editorial point of view, from a publisher point of view, perhaps to push authors not to put too much landscape in or description, uh, especially in the books that we publish in genre fiction, it's kind of get away with the minimum you can um, rather than actually treating it as an art in itself and an integral part of the book. It's almost like, okay, you've given them enough impression now, let's move on. Let's get the action going. Do you ever feel that pressure? Have you ever been under that pressure? No. And I, and I'm not sure I really agree with that in that I think that description for description's sake, yes, get rid of that. And that in terms of modern taste, absolutely that you don't want four pages of describing the room before you discover there's a body in the middle of it yes. with a knife in the back. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you but if you look at some of the most powerful genre fiction, you know, our son, you can have him on soon, is writing his first um, series of books, fantasy novels. 
and he has beautiful description. And I would say, you know, look at, say, Anne Cleves. Let's just choose Anne Cleves as yeah. a crime writer. What gives her that enormous um, passionate following is partly the descriptions of Shetland or North Devon. Um, and so I think it's more that when you're reading description that's there because there's no story, then modern taste doesn't want that. But if you're getting description because it will matter in a chapter's time, that the reader knows that there is a hidden path behind that tree, and that is where the protagonist is going to be scarpering for her life or his life. Then, so I, I think that's the difference. That you know, I feel that sometimes when I'm reading, that the author is writing her way into the story, and that's when you get a description of every single shop on the high street. But <laughs> you know, that's that's where you guys, that's where editors and publishers come in, going absolutely. So everything in a novel, whether it's description, whether it's dialogue, whether it's character, has to earn its place. Mm. And if it hasn't earned its place, then it goes. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's, it's that idea of every word matters. So, you know, you, you're not just throwing away words for the sake of it, that it's there to convey something. Mm. So, you, you know, as an author, you ask yourself, what am I trying to convey here? I'm trying to convey an atmosphere, but I don't need to do it with a long paragraph about the weather and the trees and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just a sentence yeah, will yeah, say it. Yeah. Yes, but of course then you see the thing that you might have is that the weather is important because in two chapters time, someone makes a comment about being in a particular place and the reader knows that that has to be a lie because they're saying, oh, it was really sunny and I could see the <laughs> shadows on the line. But the re you know, we know that actually that day it was raining. So it's exactly everything. Everything must be a thing. That's yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. No. We'll, we'll put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah but... it, it's yours. It's yours to use. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. It's actually great that everything must be a thing. So you know, there we are. We're just well, we're just looping around. Uh, no, no, absolutely. And and now you say your son's writing as well. So which? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously so, in the family. So that the, the Moss literary dynasty grows, which is fabulous. Yeah, it grows, grows. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, you know, I'm fascinated. We didn't ask Greg this, but you know, perhaps we're unfair to ask this. But I mean, you know, how much of a daily discourse is around <laughs> the craft in your family? Did you sit around the dinner table and talk about craft? Basically, I think that's what he's asking. Well, it's you know, there's mainly things like, has anybody fed the dog? Whose turn is it to do the dishwasher? You know, as always. But actually, I would say probably we do talk more than many writing partnerships would, because Greg has been. Um, an extraordinary teacher of uh, novelists and biographers and particularly more recently playwrights. He is yes. the best teacher anyone knows. Uh, I know people will argue because they will say their mum is the best, but, you know, really <laughs> extraordinary. And he has been an encourager of other writers for all of his career. And because of lockdown, finally had the chance to write his own novel. And then, of course, being Greg has therefore written several other novels. You know, I, I've written <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, if you're going to do it, like you must do it in space. Yeah, you know, he's very, he's very much speedier than me. Makes less of a, a meal of it. Um, but therefore, because it's very new in him for him at this moment, um, he does come down from his study and say what he's been doing. And I'm usually going, oh, I haven't done anything, you know. So, um, <laughs> But we do therefore talk about those kind of things, partly because we are very different as writers. 
the way I work, the way Greg's work, completely different. Um, the things that are his techniques for getting going and doing it are so far from how I get going and do it. Um, but we are each other's both first editor because we're yes. both really good editors of each other's work because we have the skill of, which you guys of course understand so well, is that your only purpose as an editor is to read the book that the author wants to write and give contribution to making that the best book it can be. It's not your book, it's not a different book, it's that one. Um, so we do talk about those things. And when I'm um, writing, I will hand Greg a heap of paper and go, have a look at this. And when he's writing, he'll hand me a heap of paper and go, have a look at this. So, you know, we are, but I would, I would guard against doing that if your husband or wife or partner or sister or loved one isn't a writer or an editor. Because yeah. I think most people uh, want to be supportive. Uh, but most people, if they're not writers themselves or editors themselves, don't know the difference between raw text and the sort of thing that anybody might read in a book or see on stage. And it, it's no help to go, oh, this is wonderful, darling, when it clearly <laughs> is not wonderful, darling. Um, it was the most nerve wracking thing, I have to say, though, when our son said, I've written a novel, mum, can you have a look? Mm. Because if that had not been good, it, that would have been devastating as a mum to have to go, darling, I'm not sure it's quite there yet. Fortunately, it turned out that he really also, you know, can write. He's gifted too. <laughs> well, yeah. it, you, know, you know, it's the same thing. It was, but you can imagine, I mean, it was bad enough for Greg and I, but when it's your, your, son or daughter mm. giving you a book it's like oh my god and then it was like oh yes that's you <laughs> and we're yeah. all in very different areas you know greg is writing thrillers um you know dystopian uh, thrillers i'm writing historical fiction and life writing and our son felix is writing um feminist fantasy really mm. um, really yeah so, so yeah. um you know so very different so that also is helpful that nobody's going hang on a second that's my that's my area you're in. We're, we're all in very different areas and, and have very different writing styles. And so that's, that's, that's good too. That's fantastic. I mean, it must, it must be hugely gratifying to see that passion pass through the generations. And, and, you know, yes, absolutely. And I should say that we have an amazing and brilliant daughter and, and her creative expression is art. Uh, uh, so I was going to say, that's me. Not to leave her out at all. It's just that, uh, yeah, fiction is not her thing in the sense of way her thing is, is shape and colour and... Mm. texture yeah but I, but I can relate to what you were saying because my my thing is art more than editing actually and my middle son has, has inherited that sort of creativeness and it, it does it gives you that sort of buzz of oh I've given him something <laughs> <laughs> well also and we can share it as well we share, we share but the... also I think it's that you learn you know I I find it fascinating in warrior queens and quiet revolutionaries um many of the artists who are in there they are all suggestions from my daughter Martha Mm. And I said, you know, I said to Martha, you know, because she's a feminist, of course, and is interested in women's representation in art. So I immediately went to Martha and said, Martha, I don't know your world at all, really. So tell me some names of people of, of women that you feel should be much better known or are known in the art world, but not more broadly. And she was able to go, oh, mum. And that was just the joy as well of learning from your adult children, uh, because they have areas that you just don't know anything about and you know that's a lovely moment as well I think. yeah absolutely I mean it is wonderful when you can draw people in to the, I mean I, I was just thinking to myself 
when my son sends me some of his university work, he's in his final year at Loughborough and it's sports management. So he sends me whatever his written work is. Yeah. It's got to be. And I have to edit it. You know, my heart is in my mouth. Yeah, and yeah, that's, right, that's right. It, but it's been wonderful because, you know, when he went there as a fresher, it was coming in quite rough. Uh, he's had a year in industry and boy, oh boy, can he, the, can the boy write that sort of stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, the proper copy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, it's, how it it's, it's so, so and thrilling of course, to see that's why that we read. We read as well for exactly mm. the same reason that we read, of course, to be entertained and to be moved and to stand in other people's shoes. But we also read to learn stuff. Mm. Uh, to yes. be taken to places that we don't know anything about or be introduced to people. You know, one of the things I've loved about the Warrior Queens uh, tour has been people coming up afterwards saying, my daughter is studying this person, but realised that there must be other people, or my son is really interested in this. And the book isn't intended to be read as a novel. You don't sit down and read it from start to finish. It's very much intended to be dipped into, apart from the lily sections, which kind of are a more continuous narrative. But it's just been joyous, people going, I never knew that, you know, and watching to see some of the little um, people, uh, not people, the little facts about people that I drop in, um, mm. and listening to people gasp or go, oh, that's awful, or that's amazing, you know, and that that is, I think, the joyous thing about publishing and, and reading and writing is that sort of shared moment of delight, actually, which is what, you know, is at the basis of all writing, I think. Absolutely. And that, well, that's the fuel, isn't it, that keeps you going, I imagine, through the difficult points. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one day you will finish. I love how, you know, the places that you've lived have inspired your work in the sense that you've, you've written about Chichester and uh, set books around Fishbourne, uh, which I was dragged to as a kid from my to school. The Roman Palace. To yeah. go and visit the palace, yeah, which yeah. Uh, is, for people who don't know it, is the largest Roman uh, sort of thing. Private Roman Palace. Yes, private Roman. I didn't palace. know. I don't know. Well, it was it was uh, the Palace of Coggy Dobnus, if I'm yeah. right. What he was well remembered. Right, yeah. I remember that bit. Yeah, it was something that was sort of stuck in. But I was also a Chichester reporter for the BBC for a year, so I kind of yeah, shouldn't know that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, it, it, you know, it's a fabulous Roman palace with amazing mosaics, huge thing. And he was a client king when the Romans invaded, and they said, right, okay, local chieftain. And he became essentially, you know, your nouveau Roman. Oh, yeah. kind of par excellence did, and he yeah, brought yeah. in all the art and did did the thing yeah. and, and 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 took on the toga and all that stuff and built this amazing palace which yeah, they've take me to it, oh, it is amazing <laughs> we will we will we we'll next go to sussex um so that was obviously that's inspired some of your work but also uh, clearly carcassonne is the foundation of the labyrinth and, and that trilogy and you know future books as well at the moment the ones you're doing the the, the family joubert chronicles um of the Joubert family chronicles, I get the order right. Uh, I've only been to Carcassonne, I think, the once, but spent a week or so in that area. What an amazing area! Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I know, on... I know. I mean, you know, it's it's just when you see it for the first time, this extra, it, it look and of course has been used as this. It just looks like a film set. Mm. You suddenly see this incredible uh, crown of stone sitting on top of a hill. Um, with, you know, uh, 52 towers and turrets, two rings of walls, you know, the red awnings of, of, of the Hotel de la Cité and the river running down at the, at the bottom. Yeah. And it is, it is a fairy tale medieval citadel. And it, it, I mean, it, it is quite extraordinary. And then the history of the region is very, very 
vibrant and bloody. Yes, and yes, I was going to say blood-soaked, yeah. Blood-soaked, you know, a green blood-soaked land it is. Um, but it, it, there is just so much uh, to read about and to visit and to see. And it has its own very distinctive characteristic. And that's been very interesting for me, writing later books, you know, uh, setting mm. Pakistan on like the Second World War, um, that that distinctive sense of justice and uh, equality and the idea that Paris is slightly perfidious and you can't trust them mm. um, <laughs> kind of remains there. Uh, this sense of, um, we, you know, the values of the mountains, I would say. Right. So it's to sum up, I mean, this is the this is the history of the Cathars, right? The, that, well, that's that. it. That's the history of the Cathars, of course, is what I talked about in Labyrinth. Yeah. In, and that sort of yeah. spirit has continued that in the spirit, sense that I they were persecuted out of existence yeah. almost yeah, for yeah. their um, their branch of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and that feeling then presumably has carried on through the generations and, and informs... Until very books. recently. I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues in France at the moment. Um, but certainly what I was always very moved by in the Second World War was that, um, all, you know, 30,000 of the 40,000 French Jewish people were saved through the networks, the escape networks of the Southwest. And mm. I think that tells you a great deal and an enormous number of the... Uh, Spanish uh, fighting against Franco's fascism um, in the Spanish uh, Spanish Civil War um, fled across the Pyrenees into southwest of France. So I think these two things just indicate that it, you know, that it was it's a society that was not prepared to just say, oh yes, of course we'll hand over all our Jewish children from the schools because they knew it was wrong, you know. So they yeah. didn't, you know. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's, I think that's that's the spirit exactly of the Cathars, uh, that that independence of thought, and you know, you must do what you think is right, regardless of whether the laws of the time tell you it's right or not. Mm. No, that's fascinating. In terms of the research, then, I mean, we're talking about research again, but it's clearly very, very important to any historical fiction that that as much of you can do to build that world realistically is part of your work. So, uh, and given that it's, you know, a period. Uh, which is what eighty years ago or so. Um, how difficult is it to to get hold of, you know, the, the material you need to build that world? Well, I think in um, the Second World War, it's pretty easy actually, because mm. it's remained an obsession, um, a period of history that is, um, in some ways, overrepresented in film, in television, in books. Um, not least of all, partly it's living memory. You know, my mother-in-law, who is wonderful, is 92, lived through the war. My dad went, you know, was went across on D-Day plus 19 as a very young soldier. My mother obviously grew up um, hearing the bombs dropping you know, mm -hmm. in, in Woolwich in, in London. So there is the living memory, but it's also, it's, um, I think in complicated times, uh, people feel, and this is an irony, looking at what's happening to the UK at the moment, but there's always been the sense that you know who the goodies are and the baddies are in that conflict. Um, and I think people therefore cleave to those certain moments as they do up to a point in the First World War, because it seems less nuanced than other conflicts, which are, but if the truth is of course, all conflicts are nuanced. Um, and, you know, one would, I, I would say at the moment, the people most referring back to the Second World War, the people whose politics are on, clearly moving on the other side. 
Uh, so we have a bizarre situation of an extremely right-wing government suddenly in the UK who often are referring back to the glories of the Second World War, seemingly unaware <laughs> that, that the values that they are propounding would have put them on the other side of that conflict. And of course, that's the point about history, that history is a pendulum and it swings backwards and forwards. And uh, there is often not clarity. And when you're writing in France and about France, the issue is that uh, we all see the resistance as being the heroes of the hour. But for most of the conflict in France, they were seen as the insurgents. They were seen as the people who were stopping France from having her new place in the world at the high table uh, with, with Germany. And it was only as things turned from 1943 onwards that the resistance started to be seen within France as a good thing, as opposed to terrorists, essentially, who were stopping there being any progress. And they were stopping the prisoners of war being sent home and all of this kind of thing. So you have to be very mindful of those things when you're writing. Um, and also the fact that, that by the end, the resistance, certainly the Carcassonne resistance, um, the liberation of many of those cities was in the hands of teenagers. They were children, mm -hmm. extraordinarily brave children, uh, because most of the men were in camps or had been executed or, or were away. Um, so that's the thing you have to guard against. It's not that it's hard to research, but the nuance and the context of things you yes. have to investigate. And when I was writing Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, all the time I was having to say, okay, I can see on the surface what this amazing story is, say of uh, Granier O'Malley, the great Irish pirate queen. Now that sounds so sexy and wonderful. And of course, in Irish history, she's a great figure of Ireland and of women and of independence. And she met with Elizabeth I and all of these things. But then you have to pick behind that because of course, pir piracy was a brutal and often genocidal way of life. So it's always that when you're researching. It's not that the information isn't there, but the, the context in which you understand and interpret the, the information is everything. Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair point. I think with some, you know, with some of the other historical authors that we've, we've spoken to, that's, uh, that's, that comes through too. Did you think, this has made me think of, that during times of conflict, I mean, such as now, people get become more creative and they want to write more they want to paint more they want to just sort of unleash the emotions that these events are putting in them out actually i i think it's um i think it's almost the opposite mm. i think that in times of real conflict and distress quite often the work about that will be delayed I'm thinking of the First World War in particular, where there were, of course, war poets and women writing diaries within the First World War. But the scar on those countries involved in it, which was many, many countries, of course, in the world, but not every single country, no. um, was such that there is this really interesting silence after 1918. And then suddenly, about 10 years later, you start to get the great works of literature. So mm. I would say the greatest anti-war novel of all time still is All Quiet on the Western Front. Now that was, you know, came out in German in 1928 and then was translated into different languages, including English from 1929 onwards. Mm. Um, so I think what we, we will see is there will, of course, be 
books about COVID and God help us Brexit and these ludicrous political goings on that we're witnessing at the moment, um, <laughs> really. Um, and there will, there's been quick responses, pieces of television, there will be plays, all of these things. But I think in terms of, and I think you're, you're, you're right about people wanting to express themselves when you've got big emotions, what do you do with them? Certainly, you know, I, I wrote um, a book with, in Warrior Queens of traveling all of time and all of the world to find amazing women because from here in this study that I'm talking to you from now, because you know that, so you're absolutely right that those of us who are writers or I'm sure dancers, painters, all of these things react like that. But I think in terms of works of art that will endure, there will be, there has to be a taking stock and a mm. settling. And I think you'll get a lot of those things will come in the years to you know the years ahead yeah. yeah it's interesting i just so you mentioned all quite on the western front my middle son has gone to birmingham today to go to waterstones to buy that very book <laughs> there we go well it, i mean it's it is and it has one of the apart from mothering heights one of the best last paragraphs um in literature about the futility of war and the fact that war is not made by all of us ordinary people it's made by people with vested interests um, and it's this lovely last paragraph, which is, he died on a day when all was quiet on the Western Front. Mm. You know, so not the big moment of history, just, you know, just, just a day. Yeah. yeah. And that is the track, you know, and I, I don't think you can, you can sum up the futility of war and the sacrifice of those young men in the First World War better than that. No, I agree. And I, I did say to him, I said, you do know I have a copy of this book, but he wants his own copy. Yeah, well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's also great, I think. Well, there's the new Netflix version, which we'll give Yeah, that's why to. he wants to read oh, it. Okay. <laughs> I got you, got you. Now, uh, what, what, let's widen out and, and look at your, your wider career and, and the things that you've done to, to influence um, the the industry, if you like, uh, and, and the world. But uh, when you created the Women's uh, Prize for Fiction, what was the what were the challenges you had creating that? Well, I'm very glad you ask it that way round. That's that's great, rather than why did you? Because it, you know, <laughs> it, it, you that, know, that, it's just yeah, yeah. Because apart from anything else, it's very interesting that after 28 years, um, something that is so successful globally as women's mm. personal fiction, it's probably the second most, or it's certainly one of the top five best known literary awards in the world, even though it's the youngest. Um, of those and but it's very interesting to me that people still every year ask me to justify it and it's a very odd thing because it is incredibly successful at getting amazing books by women into the hands of men and women who love them it sells books it makes people's careers it's very odd that you're asked to justify something so supremely successful um, the challenges because that is a much better question was back in the day <laughs> um, was that people still were very reluctant to accept that there were genuine structural barriers or discriminations that existed against women. Sadly, people don't think that anymore because we can see on our own television screens that, that those things are true. Um, and I think it's really important to say that this is not about men versus women. This is about a system, patriarchy, which benefits no women and almost no men. So this is very important to sort of say head up that this is not about 
men and women, and it's back to why Warrior Queens and Quiet Re Revolutionaries is so important to me, that we know that amazing men did amazing things, but we also know amazing women did amazing things and they should all be there. That's all it yeah. is. So with the Women's Prize for Fiction, it was um, very straightforward in a way. There was a Booker Prize that came out in 1991 with a shortlist with no women on it at all. Now yeah. that is okay. In that if those are the books the judges like the best, then that's great. But nobody noticed. And quite a lot of us said, can you imagine if you put out a list with all women, everybody would they have would seen notice. that as political <laughs> and deliberate and anti-male, whereas it didn't occur to anybody that this was anti-female. And of course it wasn't, it was just the choices of the judges. So then we did a bit of research um, and there were many women and men involved in this. It wasn't just me, it's just I had the biggest voice and the microphone when the music stopped. Um, but we looked into it and discovered that at that stage, uh, 1991, 60% of novels authored and published in the UK were published by women, authored by women, and 75% of novels uh, bought were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of novels on any literary short prize in a list prize for, for a prize were by women. So what that told you was that there wasn't a problem with women, certain women getting published, but there was an absolute problem with the honoring and valuing of writing by women. In other words, the idea of the great men of literature was still pretty intact and that women were just writing domestic stuff around the corner and it didn't really count, much like my great grandmother. Yeah, you know, like what you said, she yeah. Wrote, you know, she wrote. Um, so we decided because um, I feel that all campaigning works is more effective and more enduring if it's positive. Uh, you know, I am fueled by hope rather than anger, if you will, uh, that we would therefore set up a prize to honour and celebrate and amplify women's voices every year, writing in English from all over the world, and put incredible books into the hands of men and women who'd love them. And the challenge was that people refused to believe that. So every interview I did, they would say, so you're really angry, you hate men's writing, you think, think no, no. <laughs> and I would say, these are the figures. And then they would argue. I said, well, there's clearly a problem, isn't there? If, if the majority of books published in this area are by women, but fewer than 10%, well, 9% indeed, of books on shortlist, there's clearly some kind of disconnect. No, no, no. You know. So, um, and a lot of people would look me in the eye and say, okay, okay, if books by women were any good, they'd be on the real shortlist. And you go, ah, okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, so that's all you could do. You can just think, will this make a difference? Is it perfect? No, but will it make a difference? Yes. And of course, now, 28 years later, it's one of the world's great prizes. Um, it's a, a benchmark for quality and for variety of voices. And, um, you know, God, if you told me, I'd still be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's that. And when people say, well, you, you know, you've achieved everything. So why do you still need it? And I said, well, the thing is, that is very interesting. You didn't think we should do it in the first place. Now we've done it and it worked. You don't think we should do it. Um, <laughs> why do you not want to celebrate the best? And then, of yeah. course, that's an answer. And, and then, you know, when I get even more frustrated and someone says, well, what do you think if I set up a prize for, for men? I say, off you go. Yeah, exactly. Go I said, it's it. taken more than 30 years of my life um, <laughs> and I'm quite tired. But if you think there's a need, you do it. And of course, that's the other thing. You know, I don't have much time for people who moan. You know, do something or shut up. 
yeah you know, yeah no, no i agree you know. yeah if you, if you don't like it do something about it no, <laughs> no interview would be complete without me dropping in an anecdote at some point so oh I, here I, we go because <laughs> i just what what you were saying before about um you know the attitudes you faced in, in 1991 92 uh reminds me of when i was working at heifer's stationers in cambridge and heifer's, uh, was, i remember heifer's, yeah, yeah very fondly remember wonderful shops and um anyway the stationers bit i was moved down from games down to work in the bit which sold printer cartridges in the early days of <laughs> oh very inspiring the glamour yeah, of it yep dot matrix kind of thing um and i was on the counter when jermaine greer comes in and she's account holder and all that sort of thing and she, I, I just didn't know the stock i didn't know where i could find the cartridge she needed for the amstrad or whatever she was printing on so she got rather upset about this, you know. Well, you would. Well, look, I, I was just being, so I had to get the manager. And my manager, Duncan, comes out and he goes, looks at the, she goes, I am a card holder. And she waves it at him. And he goes, oh, yeah, gee, grit. Tremaine Grit, you're the one who hates the men. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. That did not go well. No, 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 no. no. Yes, hilarious. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a little microcosm, a little sort of vignette yeah, yeah. of 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 what you know the the but the attitude the, someone from the vanguard of the feminist movement yeah. of the late sixties would face yeah, yeah. in the yeah. 80s. Well, and, and it's also, the angry person. <laughs> but it's also the idea that speaking up for women is about men. Yeah. It's yes. about women. You know that it's it's that you've got to go, gentlemen. Really. It's not about you at this moment. I mean, I, I've got to say, you know, the thing that was very dispiriting when I was setting up the prize uh, was that on every radio and television programme, they would put a woman up against me without fail. Um, but then when we would come off air, uh, they would almost always say, we all think it's a great idea, but my editor said I had to come on and argue against you. And of course, actually, you respect people less for that rather yeah, than the yeah. because it. that's not authentic, but is it? It's not authentic. But what I've seen with, you know, the thing is with women's prizes that, um, and I've absolutely seen this with Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. My audiences for this book tour have been men and women. It's been mm. young women and men and older women and men. And men are asking questions just as much because the thing is that all lovely, normal men, as it were, think that women should be equal. It's only the, the real psychopaths and misogynists who don't. And actually, in a funny sort of way, the fact that we are witnessing so visibly things like that in Iran, in Afghanistan, up to a point in America. And of course, there are many other examples you could use. Yeah. Um, I think there's been this sense of, not, I, I, you know, you know, you will excuse me for using the word normal women and men. You know what I mean by that. I mean, I, those are all of us who do not have the power to rewrite the laws or whatever um you know people could see the difference in the sarah everard vigil how those women were treated and the hooligans running around london you know with the when england gentlemen didn't go through um every, so when normal people can see quite clearly that people are not being treated equally yeah there is this sense of, well, we all need to stand up together. And I'm a great believer in that. I think, you know, we all need to stand shoulder to shoulder to support mm. women. Yeah. We were talking last week to Greg about his work with the Criterion Theatre. And you're yes. very involved also with the National Theatre and indeed Chichester festivals and, and yes. things like that. So um, given the turmoil that has been unleashed in the last few weeks, well, it's been going on for a long time, but has really reached the zenith uh, and all the threat of cuts that mm. we keep hearing. 
How worried are you about that wider artistic world in which, you know, we all draw something from? I think that there is, um, has always been, uh, the arts are an easy target. Mm. Um, there is always like, well, you must choose between the NHS and whether we give money to your local theatre. Uh, it's always been a, a false equivalence. Mm. Um, it's always been, you know, we are in the times now where a lot of the wealth of our country that should belong to everybody has gone into their private pockets. We can see this. So the issue is not whether the NHS should be funded or the local theatre should be funded. It's why uh, people are who are essentially paying, you know, lobbyists, um, are taking the profits that should be going to us, the people, for whatever we want. I obviously think the theatre is incredibly important. I think books are incredibly important. And what we saw during lockdown was that the arts were the thing that gave many people's life any shape and any hope and any way of passing the time. So the arts are fundamental to the mental health and the well-being of a society, fundamental. They are not an add-on, and we saw that. Um, what I am concerned about is going to happen because of the, I'm afraid, there has been a group of people who are governed entirely by self-interest, um, who should not be politicians. Uh, it should be about democracy and public good. And those have not been the politicians that have been making the decisions. Um, we are in an ex a genuine cost of living crisis. Uh, we are also, when you look at our position in uh, the world, uh, the UK is slipping down and down by almost every single metric. So it's not just that there is a global issue about, for example, energy. Um, what will happen is that arts organisations who have balanced their budgets, who are incredibly responsible, who produce incredible work, will not be able to turn the lights on. That's what's going to happen now. Having survived COVID with very little support, and in fact, I would say criminal neglect by the likes of the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, rather than saying theatres should shut, said people shouldn't go a week before the lockdown was announced, which actively had a huge effect on the theatre industry. They yeah. have weathered all of this in order now, possibly, for, to be unable to open because they won't be able to afford to light and heat the building. So I do feel worried about that. But I also feel it's back to the same thing. We cannot be passive. We must keep saying why we think these things matter. We must make it clear that, well, this is my opinion, that without reading, without Netflix, without uh, television, without music, all of these things, many people would not have got through lockdown. Mm -hmm. So we need, to, we need to all be speaking up um, for the arts now because we know that they are the barometer of how healthy and successful and fulfilling and equal a society is. Very well put, thank you. Um, one last question. I'm running for Prime Minister next week. You know, yeah, yeah. It's funny you say yeah. that, but... <laughs> well, that's yeah. about to be a, a slot for me. <laughs> um, one last question for me. So uh, next year, we will... I mean, there's two things that really sort of I thought were highlights. You're going on stage, which actually is a I nice am. segue. <laughs> Tell us I how they, said they can stage. heat and light it, but what, what's, what's... This is well, supporting the book. It's a one-woman show, and I've got a big jumper. Um, 
uh, yeah, what I'm doing next, it's very wonderful. A theatre producer approached uh, my agent and said, um, has Kate ever thought of doing a one woman show um, around, you know, warrior queens, quite revolutionaries. So not just a book event where you go and you, you talk for an hour and you sign some books and go away, but an actual show, uh, you know, animating, bringing some of these women's stories to life, you know, proper sets, lights, all of the rest of it. And I've, ju I've just turned 61 and I just feel you've got to try new stuff. You can't mm -hmm. just carry on. I mean, I love writing novels. I love writing books and, and the Women's Prize and the things I do, but I just felt, well, you know, it's that Samuel Beckett thing, that quote that's always misquoted. Uh, try again, fail again, never mind, fail better. Mm. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Uh, so I start, I think, uh, I think Chipping Norton is my first date um, on the 2nd of March and I'm on tour for six weeks um, wow. all around the UK. Um, and that will just be a wonderful experience because, you know, I'm not a London person. Um, I live in Sussex and um, I'm going to all parts of the country and I love doing that on my book tours. Um, so that will be fantastic. And what I'm really hoping, of course, is actually for lots and lots of people to come along and engage and tell me about their woman that they really admire from history. And it could be their mum, you know. Um, but also what we will be doing is in reaching out to schools um, and making sure that uh, older people's, you know, sick forms in particular, that we have a special um, ticket for them. Uh, because my experience of being on book tour is that young people really want to engage with this stuff and are doing this work themselves. So what I'm really hoping is that we'll have a wonderful multi-generational audience uh, for, yes, Warrior Queens the tour. <laughs> Fantastic. And also next year, the next Joubert novel. Yes, got to finish writing that. <laughs> As yet untitled and uncovered, but we will... Um... It is titled, but not revealed. Ah, <laughs> okay, okay, but I can okay. tell you it involves female pirates. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> this, is, this is terrific. So all the best with, with that, and obviously with the current book, which we're waiting well we've just ordered it so Good. we're waiting for that to arrive <laughs> uh can't wait actually it's going to be you know i'm sure a huge inspiration for uh for the sort of thing i've been writing at the moment yeah so. i mean I, I, yeah I'm... absolutely now let's get to the the real the, meat of this interview which the question. Uh, you know, we, we put the, the final question. question yeah let me do the the, the, the vocal bit <clears throat> rebecca's random question now, you might not think this is very random based on what we've been talking about, but I assure you, this is the question I came up with in the car on the way back this morning. If Prince, sorry, not Prince Charles, King Charles decided to scrap all the politicians currently in power and gave you the job of the new prime minister, what would be the first thing you would do? Oh, my Lord. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, I would if I do I have ultimate complete power you do okay you, do. you have to worry about uh, OBR reports and things like that. okay um well I'm absolutely up for this um obviously um so I would on day one renationalize the railways and renationalize the water companies yeah because Good these choice. things belong to us all yeah <laughs> they, they do and they should and uh well anyway look I mean Going to have a few, a few, um, a few of our listeners going, ah, you know. Well, no, I, I think of, it's a mess of lefties. So but... I was talking about my middle son getting on a train today. It's the first time he's been on a train by himself. 
He's 16. He's going to Birmingham, which is like a big, scary place. So I'm, you know, trying not to worry too much. But he did say, well, I bought my ticket from Northwestern Rail. Does that mean I can't travel on any other company trains? And I said, actually, I don't know. That's a very good question. A very good question. But, yeah. but if it was British Rail again, wouldn't matter. Wouldn't yeah. Matter. You're you quite know. right. Joined up yeah. thinking. Just back to good old fashioned joined up thinking. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's that's all we need. Well, you get my vote. Excellent. What would yours be if you were an omnipotent prime minister for the appointed by King Charles? What would what would I do first? Yeah, normally we have an answer, and actually you've stumped me here. Yeah, yeah. it's it is a tricky question, isn't it? It's it's one of the most difficult ones I've asked. Mm. Um, I would make everybody have a day off, and they would have to do something creative. A day off work, but they'd have to do something creative. Yeah, but that's isn't that counterproductive <laughs> in the sense that you you forced. Yeah, them the to economy do might go down because of me, but. Right. Well, not forced. Okay, if they really didn't want to, they wouldn't have to. But I think I would insist. I, I don't know if I'd pass a law on it, but I think we would have a nice a national politeness day. Oh, you see, I wouldn't like that. Just, just, <laughs> just courtesy in everything. You know, thanking actually. You know, everybody that's done anything to contribute to what you've done that day. You, you, you make that time and, and you do it. I mean, I, there's something that I, I've, I've passed on to your kids and, and your youngest has done this, is if you see somebody, and I used to work in retail, as I've explained at Heifers, but various other places when I was a teenager, and it didn't half make a difference. If you're wearing that name badge and someone said, thank you, whatever your name is, it really lifted you. Yeah. So I've always done that thing of making sure I check. I mean, it looks like I'm staring at somebody's chest area but i'm actually trying to find out what the name is so yeah, that because, i can use it because of my eyesight it really would be going oh thanks graham no but <laughs> I, I i believe very strongly that that and I, I bet for an hour or so the fact that i've taken the trouble to actually name them uh in my thanks will have given them a little lift because it's hard on your feet behind a till well it's funny you say that because i'm at the moment i'm i'm writing um for as a publisher based in somewhere in sussex actually and they um, are publishing twenty-five, uh, sorry, fifty-two affirmations for the day. And I'm, I've been uh, commissioned to write these. And one of them is to smile at someone today. Yeah. It says, "I will yeah. smile at someone today." Yeah. Because if you get smiled at, you automatically smile back, and you also automatically feel better. I think, I think, if if, if everyone made an effort to do that, to thank everybody that contributes towards what what you know society, in any time you contact them. That would make a massive difference to the way that the whole the whole of the country feels yeah. towards itself. Yeah, yeah. The, for me, that's part of make Britain great again. Yeah. Old fashioned mm. courtesy, old fashioned British values, like the ones my mum and dad taught me. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have got to go. Um, yeah, I've got to jump we, off. Me too. Me too. <laughs> it's cool. But, so, do you need to do a wrap? <laughs> well, we're just going to say. Kate, thank you yeah, so much. So it's been it's an honour to speak to you. And fascinating. And all the best with this latest book and all of the projects in it. And we'll say be... hi to Chipping Long because I used to live in Charlbury. And we'll, which we'll, is we'll, we'll come and see you on tour. <laughs> yeah, come and see come and see me on tour. That'd be lovely. I'm, I'm up all in... Yeah, Chipping Norton. <laughs> all right, well, Fantastic. here's to Chipping Norton and all the other places. Absolutely. Lovely to meet you both. You too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Definitely one of those pinch yourself, we've spoken to Kate Moss moments, I think. <laughs> yes, but as always happens with these moments, I, I feel this, I do genuinely feel the same level of a slight nervousness, whether we're talking to Kate Moss, Ian Rankin, or whether we're talking to someone who is an editor who isn't well known or, in the or world. A first, a first time author, yeah. I yeah, mean, well, I, everybody. Because yeah. you just don't know what you're going to get, do you? You don't know what to expect, and the conversation will go off in a direction you don't 
predict. And absolutely. I love it. I no, absolutely you're love absolutely it. right. You're absolutely right. We're, we're speaking to uh, a Hobeck author next week. We are. We're speaking to Maureen Mayant. And her new book, The Confession. Which it, publishes a week tomorrow. Fantastic. So next week, uh, we'll be talking to Maureen as, on the eve of The Confession coming out with Hobeck Books. And we've got a little book launch in Glasgow to attend, if we can get up there. Uh, at the weekend after that yes with that there's a poster already on the door at this bookshop in glasgow. designed by designed by josh so if you live near glasgow or in glasgow and you go to the gallery bookshop look out for the uh, confession poster designed by my very talented 16 year old son absolutely <laughs> so we're looking forward to that uh thank you again to, to kate moss for joining us um it's been it's been a very strange weekend i, I did something that i haven't done well pretty much ever but i mean so for a long time bungee jumping no no it wasn't that no i i I got a call um in the middle of the week from uh the royal british legion and uh, for those of you outside the uk perhaps aren't aware of it it's um if you've ever seen uh people wearing their poppies uh, around november it's because that's the symbol of the royal british legion and it raises money for veterans and their families uh for their service to uh, the UK and elsewhere. And uh, they raise money for services to help people who've been ex-service personnel, whether they've got injuries, mental, physical uh, issues with life. Uh, They've got a 24-hour helpline, which helps a lot of people. They have a battle back centre, as it's called, in Lillishaw, which is just up the road from where we are at the moment, uh, where people with physical injuries, serious physical injuries, can rehab and uh, get back to the best health they can. Uh, they help people get work in civilian life. Lots and lots of services, amazing stories. Uh, in fact, there was one that was mentioned yesterday on the platform um, about uh, a family who, who uh, the, the, they were on holiday in Greece and their holiday insurance didn't cover the fact that she gave birth. The, it was a very difficult birth. The child was terribly ill, needed to be flown back um, in a sort of uh, a, a dedicated aircraft, medical aircraft, and they were facing a bill of about £100,000 to cover it. And the Royal British Legion stepped in because they're ex-service personnel. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah, yeah uh, it's extraordinary. Well, you, you, I think you should explain what platform. Right. So I was standing on a stage and this was down in Cardiff uh, yesterday morning on Sunday for Poppy Run 2022 in Cardiff. First time they've held it there in the beautiful Butte Park. Wonderful. Down by the River Taff, right in the centre, leads up to the castle and the Principality Stadium. Amazing park. I wish I'd explored it when I was a student living across the road from it. Crazily, I didn't. But there you go. Um, That's a student for you. And uh, I was the master of ceremonies for this poppy run. So 200 people took part and uh, it was a fabulous occasion. Terrible, terrible weather, driven rain. You know, squalls of really, really heavy rain sweeping in just as we started. We had the, the same, yeah. Yeah, very, very difficult conditions. But uh, we had all sorts of, we had children as young as, I think one, the youngest competitor was five years old and she finished the course <laughs> running across the line. Um, and uh, one young lad, who was only about seven, just charged across. He was the third, third finisher. It was unbelievable. Cute. Um, but dogs as well. And uh, No you cats. Know, no cats. Quite a few dogs. There was a little puppy, 14 weeks old, took part. It was just the cutest. And two little Jacksons were the last to finish. Um, you can imagine doing five kilometres uh, in the rain for a Dachshund. It takes some time. <laughs> Maybe so, you got little legs. But they, they got the biggest cheer of the week of, of the lot, I think. 
Um, and it was just wonderful. So I had to uh, build up the atmosphere and, and pass on the key messages, making sure everyone knew where everything was and how it was all going to op- operate. We observed the last post and two minutes silence. And then we had a warm up from uh, Reese, who was a sort of version of Mr. Motivator, <laughs> went up on my stage to do that. I tried to do some of the exercise and nearly pulled something. Um, but uh, yeah, my job is just a lady. To, to build the atmosphere, talk to the competitors beforehand and after, and, and just create a party atmosphere in that terrible weather. And it worked. And I, I've not done that for, you know, sort of public facing stuff for a very, very long time. And uh, it was very last minute, had very long lists of notes to, to, to memorize. And um, I'm, it was a wonderful occasion, despite the weather, the people of Cardiff are amazing. Um, in fact, people have travelled from from uh, across the the seven from Bristol and other parts of the country to come to take part in this. And it, you know, I have raised money for the British Legion in the past, and it just reminded me just what a wonderful charity it is. I mean, we kind of get blasé about the poppy and what it stands for, but when you meet some people who are competing, they've got husbands and wives out across the world serving with the British Armed Forces, um, and their kids are running. And they're not going to see their dad until after Christmas and stuff like that. You just, yeah, I felt very moved actually by some of it, and some of the people I met and the the, the efforts they went to to raise money, and uh, it was a real pleasure, real pleasure. I'm very tired now because you know it it, it takes a lot of energy to be out in front of an audience yes. like that for for four hours in the terrible rain and try and keep spirits up. But um, it was uh, it was an honour to work with the, the British Legion. They're a great team. Um, fabulous people and uh, doing great work. Good. Yes. So what did I do yesterday? I I was working on a a different project, so not Hobeck. I am working on a uh, deck of cards, 52 positive affirmations for life for a different publisher. And it was, I really, really enjoy it. And it makes me feel better about life too. It's a byproduct. Well, something you've got to. I don't. Um, well, I'm going to gift you my author copy. All right, well, that's <laughs> sweet. Um, how many? How many have you done now? I'm on. I think I've done 44. Yep. But I've also got to make uh, write the booklet that goes with it, sort of the how to use the cards, what are affirmations, information. I love writing this sort of thing. I'm not very good at writing crime novels. Haven't tried one yet. But nonfiction, I love writing that sort but of thing. But you have contributed to cooking the books, which is our Christmas book. So well, let's build up the anticipation yes, of cooking the books right today. By the Hobeck team. In fact, today is the last day oh, the Hobeck authors can send anything to me for cooking the books. I know there's one coming today. Then it's going to be go to press tomorrow with any luck. So wow. very exciting. It's very, very busy. Yeah. So this is cooking the books. It's uh, it's going to be cloth hardback and ebook. Um, it's a combination of recipes and short stories, stroke, uh, vignettes, sort of accompanying material to each recipe, uh, giving it a bit of context. Or, mm. And there's, there's humour, there's darkness, there's all the things you would expect from the Hobeck team. Ah, oh, brilliant. Well, that's... And you've contributed as well. I have, yes. I've, I've got my uh, hangover recipe um, in there, uh, which is, uh, you know, based on the character Mungo from... Uh, some point I will finish the book and get it out there. But uh, Mungo's a manservant to my main character, Rafe Edwards, and uh, it's a set in World War Two. So whatever ingredients you could find in that particular period of 1940. <laughs> okay, um, well, that's, let's wrap up the show this week. Um, we've blathered on a fair bit, but, you know, lots of big Less issues. Less as a wee. <laughs> okay, I've blathered on a heck of a lot. Uh, but it's been a pleasure to speak to you and to join you again 
here on the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much. Go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for all of the Hobeck updates and news. Subscribe to our newsletter there. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. If you are on any particular platform, just hit subscribe. It means a great deal to us. So I've been Adrian Hobart. I've been Rebecca Collins. We've got Maureen Myant this week. A big thank you to Kate Moss for being our guest this week. And it just remains for us to really wish you, well, A. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. B. Creative. Uh, no, I was going to say, and uh, hope your cold goes and you don't give it to me this week. I think I've got your cold anyway. But let's, uh, let's finish with our traditional happy <laughs> and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.